If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy. For those of you who might be new to us or maybe to church in general, we've been, uh, I've been preaching through passages of 1 Timothy bit by bit, and we've slowed down a little bit. Not for any other reason than I think that this, this text, these passages are, are so thought of uh, improperly by uh, wonderful Christians that I just wanted to slow down and have them almost come over us and let the Lord teach us as He will. I'm going to do something a little bit different today, and I'm already going to apologize for doing it. Uh, I cannot stand when people do this kind of stuff, but if you were, this is going to be participatory, and I'm sorry, if you were, if you became a believer before the age of 12, or somewhere around the age of 12, if you became a believer somewhere around the age of 12, would you stand where you are? If you were young, came to a knowledge of the Lord, would you stand? Now, if your mom had nothing to do with that, please be seated. If your mom had nothing to do with that. All right, now hang, hang for a second. For the last couple of weeks, I've been asked, since I've been talking about women within the church and women within ministry, so what can women do? I want you to look around and see all that women do for the glory of God's name. All right, you can be seated. This morning, another thing that may be surprising, (laughs) but one of my favorite things to watch in the world, one of my favorite things to watch is the Texas A&M Marching Band. The Texas A&M Marching Band. I know. Any whoops? Get out. All right. The Texas Texas A&M Band, this is their moment. They're not good at anything else, but boy, do they have a band. All right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, the a and band is truly something to see. They are so well known wherever they go that normally when a visiting team goes to another, uh, to another site, it's always the home site that does the marching during the halftime, but anywhere the a and band goes, it's always the other site that says, please march for us. Uh, and they, they're invited by so many places to come and perform, even in their own crowds. And really, the a and band has changed the game for marching decades ago by not only having incredibly complex formations of instruments, but also the formations of these instruments actually going into each other, around each other, above each other, below each other. You cannot mark what a Texas A&M band does on an X and Y axis. You have to throw in a Z. They've truly changed the game. It's unbelievable. And if you look close up, man, I'm fired up now. If you look close up to to these instruments that the band has, you see all the hard work of their practice go into play because all of the instruments are so damaged and so banged up because in the hard work of practice, they just kept clanging into each other to where then they work so hard to where when they perform in front of other people, it is beautiful and a sight to behold. The amount of work put into this intricate, multifaceted formations actually pays off where the A&M band, in my opinion, is one of the most spectacular things in sports. And why is that? Why do people literally cry when they watch the A&M band march? Because in today's world, order, structure, simple precision is actually breathtaking. Because there's nothing in the world like it. Nothing in the world is in order. Nothing in the world is simple. Nothing in the world seems precise. And my sermon's passage comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 and where the author has the words of Christ about worship being explained. 
So last week's passage was explaining how women are to be organized in the church's worship services. If you only came last week and you hadn't come before, before that there was instruction from Paul on how men are to likewise behave within the worship service of a church. Their women are to learn quietly with all submissiveness. They're called by God to not teach or have or exercise authority within the church setting. Now, what's that mean for women? It means that whenever we gather, it is to be qualified men, whom Paul will qualify in the next chapter, who are to teach and to lead the church. And then everyone, when the church gathers, are to hear the word and act like a believer. Now, why does Paul argue this? Why does Paul say it's not right for a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man? Why is it, why is it Paul saying that women are to learn in all submissiveness? Why is Paul saying that women are to be quiet when the gathered assembly comes together? Why does he say this? He explains that. He answers that question with our passage today. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that the church's witness, or the gospel, the church's witness, you think of a light that's being upheld, the church's witness, the gospel is both sustained and magnified when Christians worship as God has ordered us to worship. Now, we are prone to disorder, but friends, let's give ourselves over to the order of God's word, knowing God's order produces holiness in our lives. It's always God's order that produces holiness in our lives. Now, I've got, I've got two main points. The, the first one is verses 13 to 14. The second one is verses 15. But within the, the first point, I've got two subsections. But before I get to those subsections, I think it's just a helpful reminder that God's word tells us today that when people are saved, they're not just left alone, but rather they are saved to be a new people. Christians are saved into the body of Christ. There's no wandering individual Christians in the New Testament. They're called to come together and be what God's Word said is the church. And so God's Word shows that the church is led by people who are called elders. Uh, And within our day and within Timothy's, there are people who from time to time try to rule or to lead the church who are not called or qualified to do so. So we're saved into a church, a church is led by qualified men, but from time to time there are people who go outside of the bounds of how a church is structured. Now just as a side note, I put a little, uh, I put a little picture on the back side of your bulletin there below the outline. I'm going, I'm going rogue today. I just had participatory things happening in a service, now I'm showing you pictures. But within that, there's a Venn diagram because I think there's a lot of confusion in today's church on, on what is an elder versus a pastor versus an overseer or as it's translated, a bishop. What's the difference between that? Some, some people see pastors and elders as actually different people. I hope what this Venn diagram does, made by one of my friends in Wichita, actually shows that the Bible uses these terms, pastor, elder, bishop, or pastor, elder, overseer, as interchangeable in order to stress or put a unique sense on what he's talking about, what God's talking about in the New Testament. So I hope that just is a helpful thing. You can put away later or look into it. Um, but... I hope that's there. So when I talk about that God has called certain people to lead the church, they're called elder or pastor or overseer. Now, I've said it before. I hope it's helpful. Every church actually has elders. Every church has elders. You might be thinking, wait, I grew up in a church without an elder, or I grew up in a church without a company of pastors. That is to say that there's always people leading. There's always someone in charge. The Bible says the people who are in charge of a church are the elders, There's always a person in charge, or there's always people in charge. The question, though, is, are they qualified to be in charge, and are they recognized by the church? 
You can imagine where someone is a really strong leader, but he's not qualified to be a pastor, yet he still might be leading in the church. Or, or some woman might be a strong and, and courageous woman and is acting in a way that an elder acts, but the Bible has not called or qualified her to act that way. Or someone might be operating as an elder, yet it's the, the church who has not recognized them, which is why when we nominate elders to the church, we're actually saying this, this man is actually operating as an elder, he's acting as a pastor, and we want you, we hope that you will recognize him as such. Now, the Word gives parameters in the New Testament about that, all this, about who is qualified and, and who is to be recognized. And in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that the church of Ephesus is, hear this, the church of Ephesus is actually shipwrecking itself. That's the language that's used here in the book. A, a church is shipwrecking itself in part because women have taken the position not allotted to them according to the Word. Whereas God, God's word says and shows that women are not permitted to function nor hold the role of pastor, elder, overseer. Now, in the Bible, we see women doing, frankly, amazing things. So this is not discounting all of who women are in the scriptures. You have Deborah in Judges leading the Israelites. You have women announcing the risen Christ to people who don't believe them, yet they're so courageous and bold to say, this happened. You have women praying in 1 Corinthians 11 and the gathered assembly. You have Priscilla and her husband instructing Paul, the apostle, the mighty apostle Paul being instructed by a woman. You have women saving Moses. You have women teaching children. You have women teaching younger children. You have women working, singing, praying, fellowshipping, welcoming in strangers, on and on. You have women doing amazing things. Yet how do we get from that to Paul's sharp statement in 1 Corinthians 14, saying that actually it's shameful if a woman were to speak in the gathered worship. Or where Paul in this chapter says that he commands women to not teach or to exercise authority over men as the church gathers. Now, friends, let's, let's let God's word show us why and how he has set these parameters around his church's organization when it comes to public teaching and leadership, and let's have God's word actually show us why. It's a wonderful thing. This is, a, this is an exciting thing to see. Not only does Paul say something, but in the case that we don't get it, he says, here's, here's why I'm saying this. Chapter 2 shows, chapter 2 of 1 Timothy shows that everyone is under authority in some way. So you, you can imagine this church kind of going cavalier and thinking that I, as an individual Christian, can do whatever I want. No one can tell me what to do. I'm a Christian. I can act however I want. I have the freedom of Christ. Yet Paul tells all of them in particular ways that they're actually to pray for certain people because those people have authority over them in a civil way. They're to pray for what you and I would call our governor or our president or our mayor or a city council member. Why? Because we're under these people's authority. And it's important to see that that is from creation, not from culture. Now, the argument typically is that Paul, the, the argument against the, the clear teaching of this passage, is that Paul is arguing something from culture. So at that time, men were seen as better than women. Women were seen as dumber than men. Or men were seen, women were seen as easily more deceived than men could ever be. And so they think that, oh, this is a cultural argument, but in today's culture, it's different. So, so women can do this because Paul was talking out of culture. What I want to show you is what Paul says, that, that his instruction from this 
actually has nothing to do with culture, both then and today. But it has everything to do with what's called creation, all the way back at the beginning. Now, verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. And then he says, he explains this, and we know that he's explaining here because of the word for. He's, he's now explaining what he's identified. It says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, what does Paul teach, though? Uh, what does Paul mean when he says teach or exercise authority over a man? In short, I said this in long form last week, so if you weren't here, I want to encourage you to listen to that because it's more of an explanation of this. But in short form, what Paul is talking about is both the office and the function of eldership. So teaching and exercising authority, it's kind of one thing where, where these people were acting as elders. And whenever Paul talks about elders, he always has those two things in mind. He has teaching and exercising authority. Like in 1 Timothy 3, elders are described as both overseers, which is exercising authority, and teachers. Or in 1 Timothy 4, verse 11, Paul commands Timothy to command, which is exercise and authority, and teach. Or 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, Paul honors the elders who rule well and who labor in preaching and teaching. So elders teach and exercise authority in the church. That's, that's a pastor. That's an elder. That's a job description for, a, for an elder or a pastor. They teach and they exercise authority. And what God says is from the very beginning... It's actually good. But in Ephesus, there's clearly confusion of authority in the church. Not only are men and women acting independently from authority that's around them, not only are men acting barbarically, but also women here are acting out of authority within the church by teaching or exercising authority. Briefly, Paul says that that's not a woman's role. Now, some find this backwards. Some find it old. Some find it misogynistic, but Paul grounds his command with a broad view of all of God's work. He doesn't just argue from culture. Look at verse 13. He actually argues from creation, where from the beginning of time, God has women and men acting different. I've said it for multiple weeks, and you all know it. Men are different than women. Women are different than men. They were made that way. There's a lot of confusion with some today on, I can have the formation of a woman, but be a man. According to God's word, that is just not how it is and nor has it ever been. So what Paul is going to do is he's going to uphold what's called the Garden of Eden as an instruction for us. 1 Timothy 2 is like a meditation on Genesis 1 through 3, the framework of creation, where Paul is going to use it to defend the church from serious error because in creation, God designed a whole system of authority which has its apex in God's full rule over the universe. Men and women have their part, but who is in charge of them? It's clear in the scriptures that it's God. So Paul upholds the garden and shows how God restores this order that has gone awry actually in the church. In many ways, you probably don't think of the church actually reflecting the beauty of the garden, but that's exactly what Paul is calling us to do even today. So appointed men speaking and leading in the church isn't random, it's not new, but it's actually rooted in the authority of the garden. So if you have a Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's very, if you're not new to the scriptures, it's, it's literally the first book of the Bible. And Genesis 1, 1 is the chapter number. It's a very big number, probably in the middle of the page or at the beginning of the page. And then verses are the tiny little numbers. But look at Genesis 1 here. In the very beginning, God created everything. And we meditated on that for weeks and weeks last summer. 
And it is a remarkable, overwhelming thing. In the beginning, God created everything. I mean, it'll, it'll bring you to your knees. It'll make you choke up inside because everything was made by God. Not anyone else. He didn't need anyone's help. Everything was made by him. But the climax of his creation, think of it this way, like everything's driving to a point. The climax of all of his creation, there is a special creature, one creature who bears God's image. One thing that was made bears God's image. And that, that creature, that thing that is made is mankind. So man and woman are exclusively created in his image. Not dinosaurs, not trees, not amazing rivers. Those actually, while they might reflect the glory of God, they were not made in the image of God. Only humankind does. Only, you can see this as man and woman, are exclusively created in his image. But what's that mean? What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Does that mean that you and I have have decision capabilities that a dog does not? Does it mean that we might have something inside of us that just makes us better than staircases or cowboy boots? What's it mean to be made in the image of God? It means that God created humans to be living, operating, expanding reflectors who through their rule of the world reflect God's glory and God's rule. It's like he's delegating, you could imagine. I hope I'm not messing up theologically on that word. It's like he's delegating the the beauty of himself actually through the rule of man and woman. It's different than everything else. So humankind rules as God has given them the ability to or as God has called them to, and by them ruling well, they bring God glory. So I hope you see that there's authority here. God and mankind. God makes it, man stewards it. Man reigns as a delegated authority is given out by God. Now, after God makes man, Genesis shows that God, having Adam, name every animal. So God made Adam from the dust, and he tells Adam to name every animal. He sees. So, he exer- so Adam exercises authority by speaking, naming, having the authority of what is and isn't. He'll look at stuff and say, that's a zebra, and he has the authority to do so. You and I do this today. When you have a kid, you get to name your kid. I don't get to go up and say, that looks like a Joe. And you go, his name is not Joe. It's actually a female. And her name is Barbie or whatever. You know, why? Because they belong to you. I don't get to name your kid. I'd love to for some of you, but I don't get to because they're, <laughs> because they're not. I just, I just, anyway, all right, got you there. Adam gets to do this because he's king of the world. He gets to deem stuff, like the king of England gets to name a knight, administering his authority on that. But then something happens in chapter 2. So look at chapter 2, look at verse 20. Something happens there. Everyone had someone but Adam. A tarantula has a tarantula. A dolphin has a dolphin. But Adam was alone. God gave Adam commands, and Adam did it. Adam ruled over all, but he was alone. So God put him to sleep. And amazingly, from his side, from his rib, God actually created a helper, or what is called a helpmate. Not from the dirt, like he made Adam, but from Adam, God made woman. And God made woman from Adam, and Adam wakes up, and what does he do? He busts out in song. He has seen the ends of the earth, but what does he do when he sees this image bearer like him. Oh, he cannot stop worshiping. 
Yet something happens even there. In Genesis 1 through 3, Adam then names the woman. You see that? Adam spent time naming all these other things, and then he sees the woman, he busts out in song, and in verse 23, he calls this creature woman. She is like him. And he calls her Eve in chapter 3, verse 20. Now, do not joke. Eve is no animal. She's the mother of the living, it's called. He calls her bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Like a proud dad in the stands whose son just did something amazing, you go, that's my boy. He looks at her and he goes, woman, because she's reflecting God. But even with them ruling, God has instituted authority of one over the other. It's amazing. It says that they together are to have dominion. It's in chapter 1, verse 28. They together are to have dominion. We know that because it's in the plural. They're to both rule over the world. You can see here a royal authority, a king and a queen ruling together in all of God's creation. But even there, God has instituted authority of one over the other. Not because of prestige, but just because of position within this glorious marriage. From the very beginning, there's already structure in this relationship between these two image bearers. And Adam is responsible to love his wife by telling or preaching to her God's word. Remember, God gave Adam all this instruction on how they're to rule the world well, to where it would be Adam's job to tell his husband what God has called them to do. So here, he is called to preach to her And the instructions were given to Eve, but through Adam. And Adam received these words from God. So it's clear what God does in creation. He he gives a framework of authority. Adam and Eve exercise dominion over the world. And within their relationship, Adam reflects God's uh, God's divine character and God's word to his wife. In many ways, husbands, that's exactly what you and I are called to do in the book of Ephesians towards our wives. We're to reflect God's goodness and patience, and faithfulness, and love, and sacrifice, even to death if we need to, to our wife. And to tell them his word. We're to wash her with what? Weird soap? Just like some kind of weird thing that husbands and wives do? No, you're to wash her with the word, to remind her of who she images. So the forbidding of women to teach in 1 Timothy It doesn't come from what some people call the fall, but actually it's the instruction given within creation, and it's good. Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13 appeals, or chapter 2 verse 13 appeals to God's very good world. Authority often strikes people as culturally negative, abusive, tyrannical. Authority is often a simile to some of those, but authority wasn't bad. And it doesn't need to be. I said last week that the church is often seen as messy, but it doesn't need to be. A marriage is often seen as hard, but oh, it wasn't created to be, and it doesn't have to be. Authority often seems oppressive, doesn't it? Every red light, every tax season, every time you're told to clean your room. But it's not bad. It's good. Authority wasn't bad and doesn't need to be in the church, which explains why Satan hates authority. It's Satan who's anti-authority in the Bible. The role of women within the church shouldn't be thought of as cultural, but rather created by God for man and woman to rule the world. At no point in the creation account was 
a woman ever talked about as lesser in her ability, lesser in her mental capability, lesser in her handiwork, but rather Adam was alone. And God wanted Adam to have the goodness of a partner. But Paul's not done. Not only are people within the church organized by God, not culture, but they're to rule based on certain positions. And what I mean by this is they're not to rule based on prestige. You know, a pastor isn't a pastor because he's better than you. A pastor is a pastor because God has called him to preach and to pray. We often see delegations of authority or order or structure within an organization as as separating the goodness of people. You know, a vice president is less in value to God than a president. No, they're to do different things. And so he's going to secondly say that God has ordered these things, which he clearly shows, but it's not, it's not based on prestige, it's based on position. So look at verse 13, if you flip back to First Timothy. Actually, don't. Stay in Genesis 3. Stay in Genesis 3, and you know how the story goes. God made everything, and it was good. And then what happens after God made everything, and it was very good? Man sinned. Genesis 3 shows sin's destruction. Adam and Eve, you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve were limited by what they could do. They could, they could do all of this, but not that. They were limited. There was authority over them. But what did they do when they had limitations placed on them? What did Adam and Eve do? They rebelled. They sought what wasn't theirs by acting how they wanted. There was something out there that they needed, even though God said, you don't need that, and I don't want you to have that. And they were like, but I feel called to have that. So by doing what they were forbidden to do, they rebelled against God's authority. Basically, they were declaring their independence from him. And it was awful. Why is it awful? Because in them declaring their independence from God, they were actually, amazingly, not acting independent from God, but actually joining, dependently, Satan. They switched teams. They didn't form their own. First Timothy says that it happened by Eve being deceived or tricked. It was Eve who was deceived, not Adam. How did Satan attack God's authority? By attacking the woman. I wonder if you've ever wondered why Satan attacked the woman, not the man. Why do you attack the woman and not another animal? Or why do you attack the woman but not some other structure? If God is high and mighty on his throne, then why didn't he go after the concrete company? Well, this is often seen as where women are talked about as being less than men. He went after the woman because she's kind of stupid. That's not what the Bible says at all. Or she went after the woman because, you know, they're just kind of gullible people. That is not what the Bible says at all. That's a satanic remark, too. Maybe he went after the woman because Adam was so busy providing for his wife, and she was at home bored to death, like another TV show. No, the Bible didn't say that, and it never talks about women that way. Why did Satan go after Eve? Satan wanted to not just have Eve, but Satan wanted Adam to tear down everything that God had given over in order and authority. And isn't it interesting that Satan came to Eve not as an alien, not even as himself a fallen angel, but as a named animal? Think about that. That serpent, back in the day, would have been named by Adam. Yet how does he come onto the scene? He comes as someone who is aimed. Where God spoke to Adam, Adam spoke to Eve, together they ruled. But here the serpent spoke back. 
and how. The serpent's plan was for an animal, one who was named and owned by the male and the woman, or the male and the female. Satan's plan was for the animal to convince the woman, to convince the man to declare war against God. And that's what sin is. It's rebellion against God and his good authority, his good order. That's what sin is. And the actual king, now you know, or I'm sorry, the rebellion against God, God who is the actual king. And so some people are struck by the reality that this one sin would actually bring on the penalty or the payment of death. Anytime, at least in the old days, someone would rebel against a king or a queen of a land, what happened to them? They were killed for treason. It's still a law in our day, too. You rebel against the United States of America, you commit high treason, you're to be hanged. And here in the garden, what they did shows exactly why what was coming after them would happen. Now, to go against God's order is actually satanic. You see another chart on the outline that I provided in the back of the bulletin where you have the order of creation, God, man, woman, creatures. And then the, what, what you see here in the fall is that order is flipped, where serpent or creature goes after woman, who goes after man, who goes after God. And that's what sin is. To go after God's ordained authority, it's satanic. So the outcome of Genesis 3, though, were curses. You see the narrative there, but then the outcome is that God will bestow curses on these three individual people, on Satan, or four actually, on the earth, on Satan, on the woman, and on man. For mankind, there'd be gender-specific curses. These are called model sins, typical or pattern sins. You and I still suffer actually, from our fleshliness in this very same way. So, so men are enduring against the flesh in ways that are given out here in Genesis 3. And women, too, according to their womanhood, are, in, are enduring against the fleshly desire that was given out in the curse of this passage. For mankind, there'd be gender-specific sins called pattern sins or typical or model for Eve. What, what curse does she get for Eve? Genesis 3, Eve's typical sin is actually aiming to usurp her husband. The typical sin for a woman is to master or overthrow the rule that God has given her. He is to rule over her. And it's never aimed to be in a barbaric way. He is to rule over her, but her flesh will rebel. Now Adam there, still in chapter 3, verse 16, what's Adam's typical sin? It's wicked dominance. Wicked dominance, violence, abuse. And friends, this is what we see so much today, isn't it? That, that women act in a certain way, and it's because so much has been wrongfully acted on them. Men are prone to being barbaric tyrants, and God calls it satanic and wicked. Women are prone to domineer those who are to lovingly lead them, and God calls it satanic and wicked. Now, in my opinion, it's so obvious why it feels difficult for a woman uh, to hear words like submit or submissiveness. Because they felt, to paint a broad brushstroke here, they felt so often the actual pain of man's flesh. It is statistically true that men beat women more than women beat men. It's incredibly ungodly. It's incredibly ungodly for man to neglect woman in caring for her and loving her. I think I've told you this story before. I don't know. Probably shouldn't tell it with a camera on, but you know what? Here we go. There was a group of people at the seminary that I went to maybe 10 years before I went there where um, they, were, they were all from another country, and so they were all culturally 
tightly knit and they hung out together. And it got out that one of these men was spending so much time studying God's word that he was physically, sexually, emotionally neglecting his wife. He was not acting. He was studying God's word, but he was not acting out, preaching, giving, loving, washing of God's word to his wife. And so she told one of the guys in Brotherly Love, and they found the one spot on the campus where cameras were not. And they reminded him of his duty. And he was not able to go to class for three weeks. Now, in a lot of ways, we see the continual cycle of pain because men are not acting like men, which is to love their wives. And women are not acting like men, which is to follow their husbands as their husbands follow the Lord. We see why this is so hard for women to do because they look around and they say, you want me to submit to that when you're not acting like that? Remember what happened in the garden. Uh, Satan went after Eve. It said that she was tricked, right? She was deceived. It never says that Adam was deceived. It doesn't say that he was tricked. He was, he was standing there, and he knew. He knew better. He was just derelict in his duty, and it ruined everything. Men, oftentimes we see the call of this passage is to women to act like women. But in many ways, they are called to do that because it's you, men, who everything is ruined when you do not act like a man. God told Adam. Adam knew. Now, maybe he didn't tell Eve good enough. Maybe men aren't good communicators towards women. And she was like, I went off the information that I was dealt with. Maybe he didn't tell her as well as he should. But either way, he was there. It's like he opened the door for destruction and then tried to kiss her as they go to bed at night. Well, we keep with the curses. The woman will seek to dominate man and the man will twist his authority into an abusive relationship of dominating woman. But also we see the curse in verse 17 where God indicts Adam with the reason of this punishment, that it was in Eve who was deceived. To say that, I mean, we, we often just only singularly place the blame on Eve and see, look how, look how bad this image bearer did. But who was to, who was to cover her? In, in, a, in a backward way, he's saying, hey, all of this happened because she didn't follow you, which means you didn't lead her, which means you are the most demonic one in this relationship. The curses in verse 17, God indicts Adam with the reason because Eve was deceived, yet Adam was passive. Adam, the man who was called to speak truth, to hear the devil and to preach truth to his wife, to stand in front of her and say, come after me. I'm a man. Talk to me. I named you. You belong to me. But he didn't. He didn't love her by defending her. He sought to love her by neglecting her. Look at what he did in verse 17 of chapter 3. You listened to the voice of your wife. Another way to say that would be, you didn't listen to me. You listened to her. She didn't make everything. She wasn't told the instruction of how to act. You listened to your wife. Or through Paul's words, you listened to Satan, deceiving the one I called you to love. How many times, have something, how many times has something broken and we blame it? Or how many times... Have I acted out in sin? And I said, my sister made me do it. Well, I didn't ask your sister to do it. Instead of exercising his authority to reject sin, to rebuke Eve, 
to kill the serpent, to preach the message of the gospel. Adam dodged responsibility and abdicated his office. He let Eve take charge when he should have taken charge. He abdicated his role and led her passively into Satan's slaughter. And one thing to note is that when Eve sinned, God didn't take away her womanhood. And God didn't take away his manhood. God doesn't take away man's manhood or woman, woman's womanhood, but he actually seeks, and this is the kind of story of the rest of the Bible, seeks to redeem what is true womanhood and what is true manhood. To have a crystallization of a gospel made visible in a church where men who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb feast at a table that they have prepared, and a woman who has been redeemed by the same blood of the Lamb sits at that table, and they rejoice in all that God has done by working and keeping in creation once again. Through the seed of the woman, we recognize through her offspring will come Christ Jesus, who will bear the weight of sin and shame on behalf of image bearers. God doesn't take away their womanhood once they fall, but will say, actually, through the seed of the woman, I will come and redeem both you and her. And when that happens, he'll live, Christ will live and act like a true and better Adam. Christ doesn't come to act like a true and better Eve. Christ comes, and what does he do? He preaches, and he protects, and he provides. Because he's the true and better Adam. He's what Adam should have been, up until the point where he will take Adam's place and the woman's place by taking a position of a cross, Whereas Adam should have stood between the woman and the serpent, even to the point of his own death, it was Jesus who stood on a cross between wrath and love, absorbing them both. And by dying on the cross, it was Jesus who acts as a substitute, absorbing God's wrath, amazingly, for the man's and the woman's treason. Now, go back to 1 Timothy. Now, this, this letter is a prescription and medicine for the soul of the church. You think of oftentimes these are just heavy-handed instructions for the church to follow. This is actually more like a prescription that your doctor would give you, medicine that would help the soul of this church thrive. Ephesus was infiltrated by false teachers and false doctrine, men and women who were preaching against what God says is true and right. The first seven verses of chapter 2 are actually calling all Christians to remember they're under the authority of some kind, but in verse 8, he speaks to men and women separately, and he roots all of this in Genesis 1 through 3. In verse 8, it says that Paul says that he wants men everywhere to pray, lifting holy hands. How? Without anger or quarreling. Why? Why does Paul use this? Were there dirty hands throughout this church? Were there angry people throughout this congregation? Paul actually presses on the typical sin of men, which is to dominate others, and he says, don't worship like an unredeemed person. Worship like how I set things up. You aren't free to do whatever you want. You can't quarrel. You can't be domineering. You can't be a tyrant, which is typical of you men. You aren't free to be what you want. You are called to be holy. And then in verses 9 through 15, Paul turns to the woman saying, it's the desire to throw off a husband's leading role and overturn the authoritative structure that God established in Eden, and actually he reestablishes in the church. 
So Paul grounds his argument of telling women to learn quietly with all submissiveness, not to teach or exercise authority, by pointing us back to Genesis 1-3, through rooting us in the very good structures of authority that God established in creation. So the function of elders, which he will qualify later, but the action of elders here of the church are to speak of the true things of God and point the sheep to the cross of Christ. And in many ways, it's the church that is the reverse of the curse from the garden. The church, the community of Christ, where the structures of authority are renewed, not done away with, but are renewed for God's good rule. So I hope it's clear of what Paul is doing. He's given instruction for these men and women, and he's saying there's clearly air here, there's clearly air here. Look how I'm talking to you, men, according to your fleshliness, your, your desire to kill other people. And I'm talking to you now, women, according to the fleshliness that is an outpouring of the curse from the garden. And he says, he'll later say that these are the people who are to lead the church. Now, finally, or secondly, where is Christ's hope for women in all of this? We feel, I read so many theologians this last couple of weeks and last couple of months that are trying to undo all the hope that is actually given towards women. Women, you might find yourselves as completely hopeless in this midst. What am I to do? I can't teach. I can't exercise authority. I'm to be quiet with all submissiveness. What, what, am, I, what am I to do? And in short, we're, we're told that in verse 15. To sum it up, what does verse 15 call women to do? Basically to, to act like a woman. Only women can act like glorious women. And he's saying, women, what, what are you going to do between this side of heaven and that? Act like a godly woman. There's actually hope for all sinners here, but especially told to women in this context. It's not hard to guess why Paul introduces childbirth into discussion. This might seem random. All of a sudden they're talking and then he's saying, you'll be saved by your childbirth. And you're like, whoa, well, that got deep real fast. What is Paul talking about with childbirth? Childbirth is fundamentally the difference between a man and a woman. Men cannot have babies. Only women can. It's, it's like the most unique thing that makes a woman a woman. And, and on the inverse or on the negative side, what makes a man man? Well, in part, I can't have babies. You, you might play with dolls, or you might have your kids play with dolls, and you might have to point out and say, no, that's not, that's not a boy. They can't have babies. Or that's, a, that's a girl doll. They have babies. A culture may do everything it can to obliterate the differences between males and females, but culture can never make men give birth. Labor and delivery are unique to women, a divinely ordained fact, a divinely given office, if you will. God only gives this glorious thing to women, which again shows that men and women are different and given different ways to bestow his glory to the ends of the earth. This much is certain, yet the question remains, what do we do with this verse when it says they'll be saved through their childbearing? Now, I'm going to propose two interpretations, and I like one more than the other, and you'll never know which one. But one interpretation of this, and I think these are both right, if that is possible, one interpretation is that the woman will be saved, or another way to say this, preserved, from seizing masculine roles by resting content in the duties of the womanly calling. Women will be saved or continually saved. They'll be preserved to the end. Why? By acting as, as God has made them. And at the very beginning, remember, it was called very good. A woman is not saved by becoming or acting like a man, but actually by embracing her God-given calling as a woman. She works out her salvation, if you will, by being a godly woman. Another way to take this verse is, 
is seeing the emphasis of the, what I think is the original Greek, where, where childbearing actually has a definite article in front of it. it it's as if, it, or it's being referred to as the childbirth. I think that's Paul, what partly Paul is talking to. I think he's saying that both women are preserved to the end by being godly women, which is why he gives the instruction there that what does it look like to be a godly woman? Well, they're to continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. How can a woman operate in the church? Can you imagine a church full of women who act in faith and love and holiness with self-control? That is a church where I would love to have a daughter and say, be like the woman, women of that church. But also there's this definite, definite article in this passage. It's talking about the childbirth, which I think is at least suggestive back to Genesis, in particular chapter 3, and where it says she, the change there from woman to she, she, and childbearing, meaning the childbirth, they're both singular. So it could be read, women will be saved through the childbirth of a child. So this interpretation, I think, can make sense in connection with Genesis 3, verse 15, which first promises that the offspring of the woman will defeat the devil, where it says, you will bruise his heel, but there will be one who will come through, a woman who will crush your head. The promise of an offspring that through a woman will come the defeat of the devil. Jesus accomplished this chiefly by dying on the cross, the death blow against evil and sin, but he had to become born before he could die. And in this sense, salvation comes through, not by his birth. This interpretation, I think it makes sense, good sense, out of the immediate context. Verse 14 ends with reality of sin. What could be more natural than for verse 15 to begin with the hope of salvation in its usual sense of deliverance from sin and to the and to connect that salvation with the submission of the woman to the plan of God, even if certain roles are not open to women, and even if they are tempted to resent their position, we must never forget that we owe to God's design and his deliverance with all of our lives. So I really want to be six foot five. And there are times when I think if God had only made me six foot five, he could have been brought more glory through my life. But for whatever reason, I am not six foot five. And I don't think I'll ever be, even with the advancement of science. But, so what do I do with my barely six footness? And sometimes just peeking over with some cowboy boots. What do I do with that? I am to live exactly how God has made me, according to his good will and plan. I'm not to reach for fruit on a tree that I think will satisfy me more. Not to operate outside of any lane that he has placed me in, but I'm to operate contently, knowing that it will be for my good and for his glory. So 1 Timothy chapter 2 ends with the best consolation of all, giving hope to us, because God offers salvation from sin in Christ Jesus. Now let me conclude with this. In the first part of verse 15, if it does refer to the coming of Christ from the woman, then the rest of the verse seems to fall into place. How is salvation received? It's received by faith. Then Paul mentions some of these virtues which always accompany saving faith, love, holiness, self-control. These character traits are proof of genuine faith. If you find someone who's not loving, is unholy, and is not full of self-control, you could look at them and be like, "Mm, I'm not saying I'm the Lord, but you're not acting like a Christian. You need to repent and go towards the one who can fuel with all of this. Self-control is... Possibly the most perfect word in this chapter describes a woman of carefulness, of discretion. And back in verse 9, it's referred to the outward modesty reflecting her inward redemption. So in here in verse 15, I think 
it suggests this self-restraint in, in seeking to live in contentment under God's good conscience or God's good guidance, whereas he will go into chapter 3 in the first couple of verses there of, of what do redeemed men look like. A wonderful example of this, finally, of self-control comes from the life of Joanne Shel- Shelter, or Shetler, a former missionary to the Philippines. And as a result of Shetler's ministry there, many of the Belaganga tribe received Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Because she went and spoke, they came to the Lord. There was, there was difficulty, though. All these men that she was talking to were completely unwilling to teach the Bible for themselves. So what is she to do? So Shetler tried constantly to convince these men to preach in their own worship services. But they kept wanting her to do it with all the teaching and all the leading because she knew so much. The problem was not resolved until Shetler began to help them translate Paul's letter to 1 Timothy. She writes in her own journal, I continue translating in 1 Timothy with my adopted father in that country. And we came to a verse where Paul instructs women not to teach in the church. My father didn't bat an eye. But that afternoon, after we'd finished work, he said to me, now, what is this we're going to study on Sunday? And I I thought at the time, I was kind of curious on what he meant. He didn't normally ask me what we were going to study on Sunday, but I didn't know what was on his mind, so I told him what we would be talking about on Sunday. And as Sunday morning came, and before I could stand up to start speaking, he stood up and said, my daughter here knows more about God than I do. But we found in the Bible that women aren't supposed to teach men. So we're going to follow the Lord together. And I guess I'm the one who has to lead all of you. And that was the end of my career, she said, in the beginning of their own teaching. Now, no doubt some people would be offended by what the man did, and perhaps even by her own submission to him. But God is never offended by his own design. He was glorified, as he always is, when his sons and daughters trust what the scriptures say, and submit to his will for the church. The men, by stepping forward to assume spiritual leadership when they're called, and by women being encouraged to submit to such leadership. Now, church history is just filled with women, filled with women, who are on the forefront and influence of their own teaching and evangelism and discipleship and devotion to God's glory through their womanliness. You, you could spend a lifetime studying wives of incredibly impactful pastors, <laughs> where not only were they doing their part in the church, uh, and were they not only doing their part in loving their husband, but they were doing their part in bringing glory to the Lord through their womanhood. And sister, you too should be praised when you do what God has called you to do. He has called you to worship him. He has called you to share the gospel with those who need it desperately. He has called you to teach those who are around you, and when they grow up and leave, then to find someone who's younger than you and to teach. You will be exemplified at the city gates, not based on your ability, but based on your love. And may it be of all of us. Let's pray together.